When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. As, as someone that came through the, the college um, landscape and someone that's been quite successful, what would your advice be to, to a young player who's gonna have to make the decision of okay do I do I take the pro route or do I go to college like what what would your advice be for, for a young player like that I would tell them yo what is going on and welcome to another episode of the urban pitch podcast the beautiful game of life part of the believe network I'm Ramsey Abushal editor of urbanpitch.com to my left we got Julio Matarosa executive director of vibes for the second week going uh, Julio what's going on man not in much. We're actually recording this time, so it's amazing. I know, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you, why do you got to throw me under the bus like that, bro? Come on, man. Um, so, yeah, may or may not have uh, f- forgot to hit the record button um, uh, going on here. But uh, Julio's taking on the, the, the full-time executive director of Vibes because uh, Bridget Flores, unfortunately, is, is feeling a little bit under the weather. Um, she's keeping the urban pitch tradition alive of, of getting sick after uh, international travel. Um, she had a little bit too much fun in Mexico. Yeah, too I, much of party, too much tequila. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't blame her, but, but shout out to Bridge. Hope, hope you feel better. Um, but the show must go on. We got a very special guest joining us via Zoom. Uh, you may know him from the San Jose Earthquakes. He's one of MLS's most promising players. Uh, Jeremy Abobase, thank you for joining the show. What's going on, man? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Like I was saying on the first round, uh, <laughs> that, it's that time of the year where, where people are starting to get sick. I caught a little bug earlier in the week, so uh, just a shame that we don't have your full your full crew. But excited to to connect. I've seen seen some of your work around. Yeah, appreciate appreciate you, man. So so how's uh, how's the off season going? Because I know. Um, it's it's hard to get the full picture, you know, with pro athletes in, the, in their off seasons. I know we, we see sometimes in the, the like the documentaries, you know, the 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 going into the lab at like five a.m. But I feel like that's um, PR, you know, that's like kind of like shiny and polished, and and I don't know how authentic that is. But but what's 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 the off season like for you? How's that how's that been going? Man, that's a that's a loaded start. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's it's a fun question to to go back on because for me, like I'll start with off season has been great, a little bit too long, which is a reflection of just us not fulfilling everything that we wanted to uh, this season. But uh, that fire that lights from just kind of being sat still for, you know, the last six to, to eight and, and even more weeks uh, is what's going to instill the drive to accomplish what we know we could have last year and, and maybe even go beyond that. So that's that. But then when you talk about kind of off season and, and how you're curating what you're doing to to your followers and to your brand, I think, you know, professional athletes show you and, and you see what they want you to see. Uh, so when I was young, I was very anti like show people showing people that I'm training because I'm like, there's no value in in that. Like I'm training for me, not for people to see that. And now as I've gotten older, I've come to respect, you know, some of the people who go about that. Uh, because they are also doing it when no one's watching, but there is a certain branding component that matches their authenticity as well. So, you know, there's there's layers to what people do and show during the off season, but 
uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a good time to reflect on the year yeah. and to prepare for the following. Yeah, I forget the philosopher which which philosopher said it, but um, I, I heard a uh, you know real G's moving in silence. Lil right. Wayne. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's right. That's what it was. That's what it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great Very poet. Esteemed, esteemed yeah. poet and uh, laureate and all that. But um, yeah, yeah. Kind of kind of go into that a little bit more. Um, and obviously the season didn't end like, like how, how you guys wanted in, in, in San Jose. But um, what, what's like the, the, the overall goals for this offseason for you um, to, to make sure that, you know, next season starts off and, and continues um, for, for success. Yeah, last season, early early eggs in the playoffs, uh, in the playing game to or in the knockout game against Sporting Kansas City, who were the hottest team in MLS. Yeah, so yeah. I think we put ourselves in a tough situation by not necessarily taking care of business um, in those kind of that final stretch. Uh, and the off season has kind of been a moment of reflection. You can't take away the fact that this is a Quake team that didn't finish in the playoff positions the year before uh, that has had a lot of changes and and momentum shifts over the years. Uh, so want to acknowledge the body of work over a 34, 35 game season that was net positive, even if it wasn't to the fullest of our expectations. And, you know, now that you've had, now that I've had time to reflect, some of our teammates have as well. Uh, it's understanding our game model even more, understanding how pieces have just moved on, pieces are going to be added in, how we can all kind of incorporate into that and then hit the ground running in January. So today's episode is brought to you by Bet Online. All the major sports are in action this week with the college football playoffs ready to kick off. Bet Online is your number one destination for all your sports wagering info, including news for pro football, the NBA, upcoming fights, and NHL games this season. Head to the website today to get into the action and see all the updated odds for the week. Remember to use our promo code Believe, that's B L E A V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit online where the game starts getting that little break you know two three week break depending on who you are and what kind of obligations you might have and then kind of reintroducing yourself to different phases of re-entry fitness and maintenance and you know opportunities for improvement as well from a physical and technical standpoint so that by the time you're hitting week one week two in january you're flying and hopefully you know the team is able to take over from there in a in a group setting. Uh, so that's that's really what the offseason's like from an on-field perspective, but the offseason is such a unique moment in time that if you're only focusing on field then, you know, I think you're putting your your upcoming season in in a little bit of a perilous situation because you're going to be left wanting more. Just as just circle back on the training um I, I you see other sports like NBA or football, other players train with people from opposing team. Is it like that in the MLS as well? Do you, are you practicing with players from different teams? Yeah, I think everyone's different, but for me, I'll take that chance any day of the week because you have to remember that although we're on opposing teams today, we grew up playing with and against each other. Some of us since we were nine and we've met along the journey, you know, through ODP, which I get it makes me sound like a dinosaur these days, right, right. Um, but through ODP, through the collegiate system, through academy, like we've created community over the years and you're not just going to forget that because your competitors, you know, nine months out of the year. So when I'm in the DMV, I, I definitely, which is where I call home, I definitely mm -hmm. try to get out there and, and compete with the best that I can find, you know, hopefully learn something off them, exploit some weaknesses and, and mm -hmm. attack the season the following year. 
Yeah, yeah. Talk about talk about growing up in the in the DMV. Obviously, you know, um, coming coming from from France uh, at a young age, and um, what what was it like growing up there? And at what age did you fall in love with the sport? How did you fall in love with the sport? And what was it like playing soccer growing up in in uh, in Maryland? Yeah, growing up in the DMV is unique. I think it's the most international metropolitan area in the country, which is saying something because we have some very diverse metropolitan areas, you know, on the East Coast, West Coast, just off the top of my head in New York, Bay Area, LA, um, any of the Southern cities as well. But I think the, the, or being able to resettle from France at such a young age, but having Cameroonian and Malagasy right, parents right. Uh, really provided me with a unique perspective kind of navigating that space. French was my first language. I was able to pick up English at a young age through preschool, um, but it just created a very, uh, a very different path for me as a kid. And soccer was kind of that, what I hoped would become a unifying uh, community for me, you know, just bringing together the best and brightest and just those who wanted to have fun using our beautiful game. I just navigated so many different soccer clubs, leagues, trajectories, and you know, that was due to my brother, first and foremost, who's six years older than me, playing the game, who got it from my dad, no less. And also my family being in France when, you know, France won the, the World Cup in 1998. And just what that did to reverberate around our household and, and the country as well, and what we would bring to the U.S., Name the style of soccer that's played in the DMV because I know they have a rich community, got a rich African American culture community, a big immigrant community. I'm Salvadorian. I know they have a big, the second most, uh, uh, most pe Salvadorian people are in the DMV. So how how is it growing up playing soccer there? The style of soccer was it gritty? How did how did how was it growing up? The style of soccer was different. Every game you played, everywhere you played. Uh, but I think having so many international communities put a really strong emphasis on technical ability, first and foremost, uh, and creativity. It wasn't so structured where, you know, we we're talking about an outside back tucking in at nine years old or even at 11 or 12 years old. There was a lot of free flowing uh, football. It was extremely physical. You know, we had guys who took pride in their challenges and took pride in not getting beat. And those were guys from every culture, right? Like, and I think what it made you do is it made you adapt and it made you adapt and grow and pick different parts of different people's games and, and try and mold that into your own. So I'm super grateful that I, I grew up in, in the DMV when I was able to kind of get out of the DMV. That's when I started to see some of the differences, maybe some of the more physically built teams uh, from different regions of the country, but I, where I found the most similar style of play was frankly when I would play California teams uh, and the way they pass and moved and you know went at you 1v1 with a degree of flair that you know I didn't always get in, in other regions of the country I think Texas had had a lot of that as well but that's the best way to get the best version of yourself within the game it's to challenge yourself against guys from different cultures and that's where you're able to do where we're from yeah and and I think um especially like i mean you mentioned california and texas and those are some of the um more well-known when it comes to like producing you know 
soccer players, but Vegas as well slowly coming yeah, up. Vegas, yeah, yeah, Vegas. yeah. Um, but Is but the, the the DMV also has you know across the board you know in all sports I feel like maybe gets a little bit overlooked. Do, do, do you feel that uh, as well um, being from there? That the DMV gets overlooked from a sporting perspective. Yeah, yeah. I think from a soccer perspective, I thought it was a little bit overlooked. We had incredible teams. I mean, again, going back to before MLS Next and even before Development Academy, I mean, we had Bethesda, we had Baltimore Bays, we had DC United, you know, we had some Northern Virginia teams in, in Annandale and Arlington. So we had, you know, some some really prominent clubs all within like a 30 minute radius of each other. And yet people, I felt like people didn't consider us relevant. Like even in region one, people thought New York was the place or Eastern Penn uh, and whatever. That was just something that I took on. But from a sporting perspective in the DMV, I felt like we were well represented. People understood what kind of an athlete could come out of uh, our area from, especially in basketball and football. And the older I got, the more I got to know that because I wasn't super connected to other sports in, in, in the area until maybe I got to college and, and started to see where some of these stars came from as well. Yeah, and you got a chance to, to train a little bit in, in, in Fulham as, as well. Uh, what, what was that like? I did, yeah. So when I was 15, one of my club coaches at the time, who is British, set me up with a training stint at Fulham, and he was really downplaying it. He was just like, yeah, just go over there, have the experience. It'll be a great time. And I was like, sure, why not? I ended up going. It was life changing in the way that it opened my eyes to what the expectations were to get to the next level. I mean, it was demanding at such a young, what I thought was such a young age, right? Like 14, 15, 16, I think, you know, I'm in middle school, maybe high school. Like why, why would I see this as anything other than a game? But now these guys had given up school. These guys were being pressed for professional contracts from their family and their network down to the club who had already invested in them. So that just yielded a much faster, faster game, both technically, tactically, much more accountability at a young age. And it was just a, a again, a life-changing experience. I had a good one from a, from a sporting perspective, they wanted me to stay, but from a visa standpoint in the UK, it's pretty tough, especially at a young age. So it didn't work out, but it, it reminded me, or it showed me that I, I had potential in the game and I wanted to, to take it as far as I could. That rule is kind of weird, right? You got to have so many games with your national team before you can uh, get that visa? Yeah, it's changing. I think it's changing now with some of the political decisions that the UK has taken over the years. But at the time, I think it was 75% of the national team games with the senior team guarantees you a work permit, which at 16 and yeah, at the time, yeah. not even an American, I had no, uh, I had no trajectory to reaching. Yeah, um, and, and so you mentioned like the the kind of uh, hunger that the the players were playing with, and and the expectations that were put on them, um, that was something out of your expectations, and something that was kind of a shock to you. Was was there anything else like from a training perspective in terms of like what they were doing that was that might have been different from what you were used to in the U.S. Uh, or like what what were some of the other things that were different that stood out to you when you were training out there? I, th I think honestly, from a game model perspective, it was similar to what I'd been working with in the US, just probably enhanced a little bit. Uh, 
slightly more advanced. The biggest difference was the quality of player and their attentiveness to, to detail. In the U.S. where I was playing at the time, you could get away with just being an athlete, for example, and, and you know having the bare minimum of technical skills. And a coach could find a role for you within that team. The threshold of minimum technical skill there was night and day. And, and so that shows up in the way people dribble. I'm not talking about like flair and step overs and all that, but can you dribble at speed through traffic? Can you pass under pressure? Can you break lines? Can you hit long balls under pressure? Like the automatic nature with which some of these guys could, could execute those at such a young age playing against, you know, I, I played against wolves. I played against Chelsea. I played against some good academies while I was there. And, and for them to do that consistently uh, was a huge eye opener as well. Uh, and the intensity, like the intensity from the coaches, from the players with each other, I think that was something that I, t- I took away too. A lot of cursing at a young age, <laughs> a lot of a lot of vulgar commentary, but ultimately you have to remember that these guys are on the same team, but they're competing with each other for the same spots. Like from U16s to U18s, you're probably only taking three to six guys sometimes, which it's tough like how do you balance making someone look good but also not want not knowing if you know you're making them look too good that they're going to take that spot that that's available right it's a tough tough mentality for young guys to to have to adapt to Mm -hmm. and when when you came back to to the states after that um did you apply that kind of like um cutthroat uh competition to to your opposition when um when you arrived back in the states yeah i mean especially at the beginning i tried to share my experience with my teammates as much as possible like with any experience it's very stark when it when you experience it and you know each day that happens it wanes and wanes uh, what whether you want it to or not and and i certainly did not want it to thankfully i had another teammate who had gone through a similar experience both at Fulham and at Arsenal at at the same time. So, you know, we could come back and try and elevate, you know, the standard of our team, but frankly, our our coach also had a good pulse of our team and and keeping us on track to achieve whatever our ceilings could and would be under, under his stewardship. So we were vessels for, you know, some of that leadership, but ultimately he, he had a good, pulse on how to get us to the best version of ourselves yeah, you just came back cursing out everybody if they they gave you a bad pass or or, or something like that there are a lot of uh there are a lot of offs <laughs> hey that is me right now i've been trying to play pick up with my friends sunday leagues and i'm cursing at everybody for no reason like it's probably because i can't move like i used to like the highest level i played was college soccer so mm-hmm. i can't move so when they give me a pass and i look bad i, I get mad at them yeah <laughs> i mean if you're you're talking about doing that in in Sunday league, but this happens at the professional level all the time too. If it it comes back to communication, but if you're on the wrong page, uh, sometimes you you don't want to look inward, especially in the heat of the moment. So it happens. We deal with it and we move. At the Five Aside podcast, you you said a story when you went to go play with the Wolves. You got you got a little cocky because you were scoring, <laughs> so you try to take a player on one one on one, and hey, after the game they cursed you out. <laughs> It, so they cursed me out in the moment, and then after the game, the coach told me off, and it was—I mean, it was all fair. <laughs> yeah. like, 
I was trying to like maintain eye contact, or like maintain focus and, and not look embarrassed. But in my head, I was like, yeah, like we have that going for you. Yeah. I mean, look, we all grow through through these types of moments and, and there's no shame in it. Uh, it's just the guy that repeats the same mistake every single day right. that, you know, we should be worried about. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you been on now as like a, uh, a seasoned pro, have you been on the, the giving end of, of the, the chewing out to, to a young kid who's trying to do a little too much? It's a, it's a good question. <laughs> so I'll take it back to as, as a rookie, what was most helpful to me? I came into the league as somewhat of a crafty player who, you know, was able to dribble, through whoever, whenever, wherever, in order to create shots, assists, goals, chances for myself and for others. And there was always going to be an adjustment period that needed to be made in order to just play with the better players that I was stepping into a locker room with. There were times in which I tried to overcorrect because of feedback I was getting where I was like, okay, get the ball, get the ball and get rid of it as quickly as possible and then get to the next space. I think that was extremely necessary for me to understand both my movements and other people's movements, as well as just finding being efficient with my space um, in order to get back in front of goal. But then there were other times where that hurt my ability to put the team in a good situation because I might get rid of the ball too early. And I think nowadays what we're seeing with a lot of these different, you know, style of play, styles of play, you know, I think of a Brighton or even crew that just won the championship, like some of what they do is waiting for pressure to come before actually activating whatever pattern of play they're going for. Because sometimes if you move the ball too quickly, then the defense is, is set and, and is not moving in accordance to what you're doing. Um, so understanding that experience, I try to find a balance with some of these younger players today. I'm like, yeah, go continue to develop the creativity some of the beautiful things that, that has gotten you to this level, but also know when you definitely should not be doing those things. And if you have to learn on the fly and make a couple of mistakes to do it, then then so be it. But try to keep the vulgarities uh, to a minimal. That doesn't mean I won't get on some of them in, in very stern ways, uh, but I take a lot of pride in the young guys and making sure that they fulfill their potentials wherever that is because I had really good veterans in my locker room from all over the world uh, who who wanted me to do the same hey man you're, you're just stopping the vicious cycle and making it a more you know constructive and and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, better environment for, for for the young kids because you know how, how it felt right no I, I, I don't think so because <laughs> people are gonna resort revert back to wherever they were um, and again I had a I've had experiences where it was very aggressive, very tense. Uh, I don't think it, I mean, a few times it crossed lines, but apologies were made and, and it was all good. And that's what happens within the locker room on the field. You know, tensions happen. And if tensions aren't there, then you're not, I, I would argue you're not on the edge of trying to be as competitive as you can be. Uh, but I, I go back to just having great veterans in my locker room as a rookie, as a young player, and yeah, they could they could get on me, but I knew it was from a from a place of wanting me to get better and wanting me to be able to help the team in a, in a more effective way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and building on that that kind of rookie experience and making the transition and going pro, 
Um, the, the MLS draft is coming up, and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, um, whether uh, – I don't know if there's been a lot of talk. I just saw something on Twitter um, the other day about the – Go, the, the college route versus you know going taking the pro contracts early on in, in in your career and the risks that each one has um obviously you know the uh, with with mls next pro the the pathway to the league is is kind of changing and the academy systems and, and and all that has been kind of shifting over the last few years but um as, as someone that came through the, the college um, landscape and someone that's been quite successful, what would your advice be to, to a young player who's going to have to make the decision of, okay, do I, do I take the pro route or do I go to college? Like, what, what would your advice be for, for a young player like that? I would tell them that every player is so different and every route to the professional game is, it, yeah, very different, can't be replicated just because your best friend did it or your older sibling did it and yeah what works for someone else might not work for you it's true for people on my teams growing up and i've seen everything from guys who have been picked up by european academies at 14 years old all the way to guys who have gone to open tryouts after four-year college careers and, and managed to figure out team situations from there so it's all different I think that what's most important is that you have an opportunity to fight for significant minutes. You don't want to spend ages 16 to 22 in a position where you have no chance of playing. And that's not to say run from a fight, but also understand the balance of staying for the fight and knowing that you have a small window to, to develop. There are so many different pathways today Whereas for me, it was basically go to college and figure it out from there. You had a few homegrowns, but not as many. Right. Today, you have MLS Next Pro. You can sign directly in USL Championship right. and compete with men at 17, 18. Uh, or you can just sign a homegrown deal. And if you're ready, they'll throw you right in. Um, and college is still you know, a, a good option for maybe a player who's not ready to be a professional right away. It can still be a very formative one to three season, one to three years or, or four seasons. Yeah, yeah. And what was that like for you making it? Because obviously Duke is a storied program and um, they, they have a, a lot of history. But what was that transition like from you going from Duke to the USL with, with Charleston and then to, to Portland? I think at Duke, you're in a locker room of people that are not singularly focused on soccer and that shows up in so many different ways you have duke is duke for the fact that it brings the most well well-rounded students uh, from all over the world into its vibrant campus and tries to maximize what everyone brings to the community in order to create something even greater when you're talking about a singular focus of being a professional and winning championships that can sometimes conflict with um, taking part in everything else that Duke has to offer. So with that, it was a very fun environment to be in. The The guys were great. The locker room was great. At that time, we weren't particularly in our, at our most competitive. We had talent. We couldn't quite figure it out on the field. And so when I left Duke and went to Charleston Battery, it was the first time since that trial at Fulham where I re really realized these guys are playing for something bigger than, you know, 
just being next to their buddies and, and trying to make memories and, you know, see where it took a, or see where it takes them. Right. Mm -hmm. I always knew that that could be a possibility for me. So I had this different mindset when I was in those circles, I made some sacrifices socially and, and maybe beyond in order to try and stay on that track, but it didn't prepare me for what I would find at Charleston and, and some of the veterans who, again, would get pretty hard on me based on some prima donna attitudes they might've felt I had, uh, or maybe some of the uh, deficiencies that I might've been showing at, at a particular moment, but that would really prepare me for Portland. So grateful for, for how that trajectory has transpired. And how was it your time in Portland? Portland, one of the most decorated uh, franchises in the MLS, always, uh, they always looking to fight for a championship. Um, you made it to the final with them. How was it? Yeah, my time in Portland, like overall was great. I made some of my best friends playing for Portland, riding the highs and lows of being a professional athlete when, you know, you're not even starting for the reserve team. And, and when you're starting in an MLS cup within six months and winning the bubble, but also experiencing being stuck in the bubble for yeah. you know, six to six weeks, I think it might've been. Um, so it, it was a whirlwind, I think speaking specifically to 2018, that 2018 had both the lowest low of my professional career at the time and the highest high in that summer 2018, I wasn't starting for the second team. I felt like I was on the outs in Portland. I felt like, you know, there wasn't a plan or belief in me and I wasn't able to show myself to the extent that I would have wanted to show. And so naturally, you know, you just start going through all the, the thoughts in your mind, like, Am I cut out for this? Can I do it here? All sorts of negative thought processes, which you know I've had to address through sports psychology and figure out how to manage. Um, but again, six months, not even four months later, I was starting an MLS Cup in front of 70,000 plus in Atlanta. A storied team on the other side, we had played Disruptor you know, for, for the previous rounds in Kansas City and Seattle, in Dallas on the road. So we felt like we could steal one more uh, we had a talented team, very experienced. You know, our spine had won MLS Cup in 2015, but they were strong. They were strong, and you know, in the in the pain of the defeat, grew you know an ambition to to hopefully get back there one day, and also to know just what the standard is. Portland was a team that competed for championships. You know, before I came, we went back in 2018. We won the West regular season in 2017. Uh, semi-final Open Cup in 2019, bubble champions in, in 2020. They got back to MLS Cup after I got traded in 2021. Uh, so the demands for excellence there are, are things that, you know, I'm trying to uh, instill in, in San Jose as I know other people are here as well. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you, you mentioned some of the experienced players, like Diego Valeri is, is someone that, that obviously stands out he penned um i don't know if you saw he penned like a a, a really nice letter to to uh darlington nagbe um ahead of the uh the uh, mls cup final um and i mean obviously highlighting darlington's you know uh teammate like his values as a teammate and as a player but to me it, it really showed his passion for the game and his love for the game i'm talking about diego what was it like playing with with someone like that who who clearly exuded just such a a, a love for 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 soccer 
Yeah, I'll talk I'll talk about both of them because they're both special players and, and yeah. people um, who I've had to share who I've gotten the opportunity to share time with. I think in Diego, you have what you see in that letter and what you take away in terms of his passion and the thought process that goes into the game, like that's that's what shows up on a daily basis. He is extremely meticulous and detail-oriented and passionate about what he brings to the team, but also how he can make the team better via different relationships uh, or different tactics or styles of play. And as a young striker coming in and really witnessing, I, I didn't play a huge part in his MVP season in 2017, but I was able to witness it up close. That created a different level of understanding that I would need to have if I was going to play with someone like him. It was no longer, but I thought I thought quickly. I thought that, you know, I was one step ahead, but soon I realized that he was two steps and three steps ahead. And really you want to be ahead of the person that you're playing with so that you can facilitate their jobs. And eventually we got into a pretty good relationship where when I was a striker, he was the 10. Uh, I felt like we had a good understanding of space, how to get the most out of each other, even if it was by using a third party, like using a winger and outside back to get the final you know, connection point. I felt like my understanding of the game grew a lot playing next to him. Um, and then to, to nag, because obviously he's, what he's done and what he's done and what he's been able to accomplish most recently in, in that fourth MLS cup, you know, I look back and I wonder what would have been in Portland had we, had we kept Nagby after 2017, I, I mean, I'd seen the, the highlight real goals growing up. Uh, so for him to be in the locker room that I first stepped into for Diego to be in the locker room that I first stepped into Adi as well. I mean, these guys were guys that, you know, I, I respected deeply and, you know, back to Nagby, it, it really showed that beyond the player, beyond the skill and the poise um, was a person that looked out for, for guys in the locker room in, in his own, you know, sometimes seemingly nonchalant, but also very intentional way. Like one story that I, I haven't shared, but it was after my second start in Portland and I'd had a tough game and I'd put a lot of pressure on myself going into that game, knowing the opportunity was there to win a starting spot for the rest of the year, or at least compete for that starting spot. And, you know, where there were other guys in the, in the locker room or around the team that acknowledged the challenging evening uh, in, in their subtle ways. Like D was one of those guys who like went out of his way to really have a conversation about the game and make sure that I knew that I didn't struggle because I wasn't, I didn't struggle because I was unable to to play at that level and really just allowed me to contextualize the game in, in, in a different way that, you know, this is what happens at different times. Like we were all struggling for X, Y, and Z reasons. You need to be able to separate yourself from what you think happened. And I'm kind of glossing over the specifics, but, you know, that's the kind of leadership and the understanding of like what a young person might need at that time uh, in order to stay on the right path. So, you know, the, the player everyone sees the player, but I think the person is, is as important to highlight. And, you know, it's, it's awesome to see him continue to shine. I just wish he hadn't taken one away from us in, in 2018, yeah. but yeah, that, that's how the game goes sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, coming into a locker room like that, like it's pretty ideal situation with, with such great vets like that. I mean, I, I won't name names in the, in the MLS, but like you could have gone into like a 
dysfunctional situation. Like in, in the NBA, for instance, like they talk about like the old Washington Wizards, where it was just like kind of a, a, a wild, the Wild West out there where everybody was just kind of doing their own thing. Um, Respect my Wizards, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, they're moving out of D.C. So I saw that they're moving uh, like to the suburbs, right? In, in Virginia? Not, I don't know if it's really the suburbs, but they're moving across the river. Yeah. Conflicting thoughts. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll have to digest that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but I, I completely didn't connect that uh, Wizards. Were, the Gilbert were, Arena Wizards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, I mean, the, the stories are like, they're, they're all out there um, for, for another podcast. But um, now, like you're still young, but you have that experience now where you're, you're kind of looked at as, as someone who's been in the league for, for a few years now um, as the, um, I won't say like, like let's say like a veteran as a veteran um player now um what lessons have you taken from some of the the guys that you came up with um and specifically has have you had to kind of use those lessons with any young players in in, in san jose yeah i think one of the most important lessons goes to staying in the moment and not getting so far ahead of yourself, but also not holding yourself back from expressing who you are and can be, especially as social media continues to, mm. you know, be so pervasive in every part of our game. It's so easy to get caught up and think that you're better than who you are, that you've accomplished more than what you've actually done. And when I look at myself as a young player, I was part of that trend. I think we were kind of in a, Twitter and Instagram period before, I mean, there was Vine maybe, but that was really a sports <laughs> right. platform to like amplify yourself and boost your ego. Uh, but I was a part of that generation where we just started to use it for uh, branding purposes and sporting purposes. And I was feeding into all the compliments that were coming my way when I was hot. And then when I was going through a bad patch, I was feeding into all the negatives and all the hate and frankly, un, undue criticism that was coming from everywhere, anywhere and everywhere. And I really absorbed that toll in, in a negative way. And it impacted me for, for a few months in my rookie season at the beginning. And I tried my hardest to, to share that with some of the young players today, like have your moments, enjoy them, but keep it all in a context that there's still, you're not where you want to be. And mm -hmm. the only way you're going to get there is by being humble enough to keep going without thinking that you're already there. And then also once you build up that kind of mental resilience and I would say just understanding of the process, I think it makes you a little bit more resilient to some of the commentary that comes from outside. The only people, the only people's commentary that should matter to you are, are, one that comes from within and the ones that come from people who are so close to you that see you on a daily basis and want to help you get better. Cause that's when you know that the criticism is going to be uh, to send you to the right place. Yeah. Yeah. Don't read the comments. Don't read the comments. <laughs> we, we learned that one pretty fast. Oh, yeah. we, we learned that one pretty fast too. <laughs> the comments are, the comments are tough, but they're part of life. You know, Yeah. if you're, if you're going to be a public figure, if you're going to have a podcast or I'm going to play a professional sport, People are, are going to see what you do, think that maybe they could do it better or that they've seen how to do it better and understand it in a way that you don't. Trust me, I've watched film. I look at every, <laughs> there was a phase in my career where I looked at every bad touch that I, that I 
had in a game and just like rewinded and was so frustrated with myself and it was toxic and unhealthy and I did not get better for it. But we we know we know what's out there. Um, there's no point in reading it and and continuing the negative cycle. Just finding a way to be constructive is super important. Yeah, we were doing that with Julio. Every time he messed up, we were, we were running back the film and kind of pointing out, you know. I'll, I'm not coachable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not coachable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I blamed everybody. I was like, hey, you should have just said it better. I, yeah. I probably would have reacted better. So I'm just not coachable. I'm not a coachable person. Not a great <laughs> locker room guy. <laughs> I think I'm better than my, my co-host. So it, I, I just have that. That's yeah. my problem, but I know it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, but but one thing I wanted to talk about um, was your uh, now being in San Jose and th some of the stuff that you've done in the community and, and embracing the community in the Bay Area. I know you talked about it with the Five Aside guys a little bit, but uh, f from an outside perspective and just seeing like how tapped in you were with the community, to me, I thought you were from the Bay just from like seeing how you know how much you were doing, like the stuff you were doing uh, like with Neighborhood Sports Club and. Um, and then I, I looked it up and, and I, I saw you from, from Maryland. So I was like, it's, it's crazy that um, in a relatively short amount of time, you've done so much to connect with the, the community in the Bay Area with, since your move to San Jose. What, what has that been like for you and how important has it been um, to, to just kind of form a, a, a place for yourself in the community? It, it's super important for me to get to know every community that I play in. I think the only one where I really didn't make enough of an effort and frankly didn't know to do so was Charleston, uh, but at Duke, in Portland, in San Jose, they've been, you know, big priorities or other people have made them priorities that I've been able to um, lean on. When you look at successful teams, they come from a community of people that trust each other, that like each other usually. It's not a requirement. I know like that's a popular topic, but uh, if you like each other and you trust each other and there's a sense of togetherness, then when you're tested in battle in a game, uh, that's going to show. And imagine if, you know, instead of it being 11 players on this field, plus the bench and the guys who didn't make the squad and the coaching staff, you also were able to create that same level of bond with the you know, 12 to 20,000 people that were in the stands. Obviously, it's not possible to do that to the same extent of what you do with the guys that you see every single day, five, six hours a day. But every step that you can take to accomplish that uh, off the field, I think shows up on game day as well. Then the fans have an added level of respect for what you're doing, understanding that you care about the city and putting on for the city and bringing honor to the city. You're not just someone who's going to come in, extract everything of value that you can, and then leave. I think that when you when you start to have players like that, or or people that aren't bought into the culture, then then you start to maybe create a, a fragment between uh, the the club and the supporters and the city at large. So I think it's just important to build uh, build a community as big, but also as tight knit of a community, tight knit. Uh, from a personality standpoint and meshing. And that's what I've done through nonprofit efforts, through meet and greets hosted by the team, uh, just being out and about and, and someone saying hi and, and connecting and recognizing me from being out in the field. 
that extends beyond San Jose. I'm, I'm fortunate that I've been able to call this city home for, for the last two and a half years, but same goes for Portland, same goes for DC. And, and every time I leave a city, it's not because, uh, or it's not that I'm done with them and, and I'll never think about them. I'm, I'm always thinking about how to impact places that I've already left and, and what that looks like. Yeah. What was your first game back in Portland like? Um, because obviously, you know, Providence Park is uh, known for having a very, you know, raucous atmosphere. Did you feel the love back from the fans your first time back? Yeah, I felt love from the fans. Portland fans have, have always welcomed me with open arms, and it's weird to be back there playing against them, but uh, I have a lot of respect for them. Yeah, so so now going, um, moving into next season, um, what what are some of the goals that you have for yourself and, and as, a, as a team uh, for, for the 2024 year? I look at 2024 as an opportunity to combine the best that we had in 2022 with the best of 2023, uh, because I think that, you know, we scored some, we scored in certain ways and with certain consistency in 2022, that was maybe predicated off of some different open <laughs> levels of openness to some of our games and some things that we maybe don't want to replicate as often. Uh, but I also think that if we can add that to what we did in 2023, which was score in a lot of games, but I think towards the end, we might've uh, missed out on some production from, from various areas. Oh. Then ultimately we can have a team that's performing at the top of the West, in my opinion. And the, the goal is team first. Like we don't have time for individuals to chase goals, assists, clean sheets, whatever it is for their own purposes. Um, we have to all figure out with new guys coming in, with guys having left, um, who can factor in where and how we can go beyond what we did in 2023. Because I think that, again, the the ceiling for this locker room is, you know, top three finish in the West in the regular season. And then what we know is that in the playoffs, anything goes. I was a five seed out of six, I think, or no, maybe six six seed um, when I, when we went to MLS Cup in 2018. So anything goes once you're in. Yeah, it's the hottest team in the playoffs, right? It's not necessarily the best one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What do you think the team needs for you be, to be that number one elite level? Or are you guys there just need to put it together? I think we're going to need to show what we – there were glimpses in 2023. I think our first 10 to 12 games were, you know, a, a – a real barometer of where we we should want to be you know we had some big wins beat lafc at home yeah, yeah. Uh, beat union at home uh, and then like even beyond that beat seattle at home uh, so you know some some statement wins for sure that were part of a phase of the year where we were consistently winning at home fighting and competitive on the road uh, and i think we just have to maintain that energy throughout the course of a 10 month season. Yes, there's momentum shifts in MLS, but we're more than capable with our talent, with our experience and with the youthful and, and fresh energy that we have coming through the academy as well as the collegiate system to uh, really mount a challenge. I also want to make a run in Leagues Cup. We, you know, we're Delta Tough group in, in Tigres and the Timbers, but we were, 
we were too competitive in that group to to come away as the one team not to have gone through. Um, so we'll we'll uh, we'll sit in preseason, reassess, you know, our our team's values if if that's necessary, or just reassess what we want to commit to each other in order to achieve those goals. But I have no doubt that that we can achieve what we want when we uh when we have time to spend together and and build off of last year. Yeah, one final thing. Um, uh, You're a striker. You've scored a lot of goals. I think I'd have to go back and double check, but I think you might have the highest goal total out of anyone that um, we've had on the show. Um, we've we've had a lot of defensive players. Like like uh, I'm trying to think of the like the the MLS guys. I mean, Kellen Moose. Yeah, yeah, Musovski. But he was he was an offensive guy, but he didn't really get a lot of consistent playing time. Uh, Dewan Jones is more of a, a wing back, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure it's you. Um, or Kalen. Yeah, Ke- Ke- Kellen. Yeah, yeah, but he's again like kind of a more defensive mid yeah. mid. But um, so, what is your favorite goal that you scored? Um, or at least one that kind of sticks in uh, in your memory. Favorite goal in terms of where it was in the season and the importance of the goal, I would say was my goal in 2018 against Seattle Sounders at home for the Timbers. We were in the Western Conference semifinal, having played a few days before in Dallas, and they had just scored on us, which obviously is not a good thing to concede at home in a two-leg series. And... It was a like we had picked the ball up and like in a two to three pass sequence, I think between Char and Valeri, I'd been sprung through sprung through on goal and was able to just dink it over and on rushing, you know, Seattle goalie. And that was as loud as I'd heard Seattle or the Providence Park at the time. It was also just a huge momentum shift because they were able to kind of quiet us down for a couple of minutes. And then we got that goal and then Blanco scored again right after that. And we ended up seeing out that game 2-1, which gave us an important, not cushion, but an important uh, positive trajectory going into what ended up being a really hard away game there uh, that we ended up sealing the series for. And then favorite goal on technical basis, but just at an irrelevant time, I'd say I had a right-footed shot from outside the 18 in Dallas in 2022. Um, that's just nice to remind folks that I, I can also use my right foot. <laughs> just to let y'all know. Just to let y'all know. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I, I know you got you got a busy schedule and, um, you know, just, just taking the time to, to speak with us. It, it really means a lot. Um, so we're, we're going to be watching, you know, um, we're, we're in LA. So, uh, anytime you're out here, you know, we'll, we'll for sure be sure to come out to the match and, and, um, you know, we, we'd, we'd love to have you in studio if, if possible, um, um, yeah, coming no, up, but definitely, I actually did want to touch on just like one last thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cause I think that it, it was like pretty, it was cool to kind of break down some of those career moments. Um, the way we did, but I also definitely wanted to talk about some of the nonprofit stuff that. Oh, for sure. For yeah, sure. yeah, 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 yeah. Go ahead. Just like really kick on these last, you know, few weeks. Uh, there's this like, so I started the King Jabo Foundation um, in order to really allow myself to raise funds from the various communities that I've been a part of. And I always talk about how important community is to each location that you know, I start to build in, whether it's DC, Durham, Charleston, Portland, and and now the Bay Area. And so having this foundation put together for me allows me to 
raise funds from people that have gotten to know me over the years who want to support the causes that I support and dedicate them to projects alongside partners that can help me execute in that vision uh, because I really don't believe in reinventing the wheel. I believe in teamwork and uh, highlighting the various capacities in which people can make impact. And so most recently that's led to Over Under Initiative and King J. Boat Foundation mm -hmm. partnering up on a goal system that basically goes underground yeah, and yeah. you can kind of pull it up when you want to play and they're placed underneath basketball hoops. So it's a super innovative way to just put soccer infrastructure anywhere you have concrete across this country. Um, but for me, my, my role in that is focusing on getting that uh, into public parks and or schools. Uh, so I'm super happy to, to be fundraising for H.D. Cook Elementary School in Washington, D.C., which, you know, is a, a school in Adams Morgan, uh, not too far away from where I grew up, about 25 minutes away from where I grew up. And what's unique about this project is that it's also going to be used by D.C. Scores, which is a great nonprofit that does poetry and, and soccer for, wow. you know, kids of many ages. But in this specific elementary school, one of their flagship schools uh, it's going to be great for it to slot in so seamlessly. So, you know, I'll be remiss if I didn't give that a little plug. Uh, be awesome for, you know, your followers, my followers to support that project. And, you know, I can't wait to show what it looks like when it comes to life, because this is not only going to change these kids' lives and allow them to enjoy our sport in such a unique way, but I also think that, you know, every school, every public park in this country, you know, funds pending should have one of these systems so that, we're not relying on kids to have to source pug goals or rely on putting shoes 10 yards apart and, you know, doing whatever it takes to, to play the game. Soccer infrastructure should be as ubiquitous as basketball infrastructure, as American football, as a baseball backstop. Uh, and imagine what our country's talent pool will look like if we have kids playing soccer at the rate that we have kids playing kickball at the rate that we have kids playing baseball for fun and basketball and football so you know it's all part of a all part of a journey but i'm looking forward to to seeing where that where that takes it yeah we'll we'll, we'll link all that in the in the description in the show notes and all that so so everybody can can check that out and 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 go and go support but um yeah i i, I had that listed i was looking at the time i, I didn't want to keep you for too long um so so I, I i'm glad that you brought that up um because you know that's obviously very important and and the stuff that that uh the over under initiative like con martino and and his team are doing is um you know amazing and and some of the parks that they've been able to set up in it just looks like it's it's been a rousing success so um you know just just wanna wanna Thank you for 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 coming on and, and taking the time to to, to spread that message and, and do all the work that you've been doing um, across the country. It's 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 it really is uh, super impressive. But um, again, thank you so much, um, uh, Jeremy. And uh, you know we'll we'll be keeping up with you and and everything that you're doing, both on and off the pitch. No, appreciate you guys' time. And again, keep growing. It's it's nice to see so many young podcasts kind of finding their own lanes within the sport. It makes it more fun for us to play in it and it makes it more fun for people at home to watch it so thank you for what you're doing yeah appreciate you always um uh for for jeremy Bobuse, julio Mataros, i'm ramsey abushala this has been the urban pitch podcast the beautiful game of life uh, we got more stuff coming uh in, in the in the next few weeks so keep it tapped in but until then we'll see y'all next time
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.